Method to the Madness is next. You're listening to Method to the Madness, a bi-weekly public affairs show on KALX Berkeley celebrating Bay Area innovators. I'm your host, Lisa Kiefer. Today we're going to unravel the mysteries of blockchain technology. I'm speaking with Ashvin Nihalani, Nadir Akhtar, two members of Blockchain at Berkeley. And before we start talking about blockchain, can you tell me what this organization is and when it got started here at Cal? Fall 2014, it was originally a Bitcoin association of Berkeley. Get-together club, social club, where you just talk about Bitcoin, talk about related technologies, blockchain. But in fall 2016, a man by the name of Tobias Dies from the Netherlands, exchange student, said we should start a blockchain consulting group. And that was when our entire organization changed. We went from a social club to a several layers of management, producing output, high standards organization, like a company. But the leadership is entirely students. In the paper every day, there's something about blockchain, something about cryptocurrencies. And a lot of people don't really get it. So can you, in layman's terms, describe the blockchain technology? A blockchain is essentially a ledger shared by multiple people, which any one of those people can edit. The difference is that you don't have to trust any of those people when making edits to this distributed ledger. Analogy I like to use is if you're watching a sports game and there's a referee, you can either trust the referee alone to keep track of the score. It's much more efficient to know what the score is at any given point, but you trust that referee to be correct, not to be bribed or to just slip up. If that referee makes a single mistake, there's no check unless you have other people watching. A blockchain is like putting the burden of keeping track of the score on the audience instead of just on the referees. Now you can poll every person in the audience at every stage of the match after every game and ask, okay, what's the score now? And then the entire audience will respond. A lot of people may not be paying attention. A lot of people may be voting in their own favor. But if you trust that the majority is honest, then you'll always have a correct vote if you trust the majority, or if you go with what the majority vote is. So like a succinct way to put it in one sentence is a distributed, replicated, append-only ledger. That's what I kind of go for, like my one-liner that I'll use it to explain it to anybody. When the financial crash of 2008 happened, shortly thereafter, a gentleman by the name of Satoshi Nakamoto came up with this idea of an open protocol system. You're right, Satoshi Nakamoto, a moniker that we don't know who's who exactly he is, he created a system for a distributed, trustless financial network. And then he worked on that and then a bunch of other people joined in. We had the we had the build up of Bitcoin and he called it Bitcoin. And then eventually we had it expanding on beyond that. And now eventually the uh, banks and other institutionals got interested, but Bitcoin had been associated with some negative aspects. So including the Mt. Gox hacks and the overall dark web and the trade in there. So then uh, banks and other institutions said, we like the technology behind Bitcoin, but we can't, don't want the necessary negative stigma associated with it. So they rebranded it, called it blockchain. It was rather they focused on the blockchain aspect rather than the cryptocurrency aspect. It was called a blockchain in the technical white paper uh, back when it was two words. When you thought of blockchain back then, there was just the Bitcoin blockchain. But then banks wanted to focus on the technology and what that could do for other services rather than cryptocurrencies. I don't even want to talk about the cryptocurrencies yet. I'm no, I want to talk about the, the, the social and political revolutionary change that blockchain as a technology will bring to me as a consumer. It's going to eliminate that middle layer of business that I'm not going to need anymore. I'm not going to need, when I buy a house, I'm not going to need 
to uh, get my title from a title company. I mean, there's going to be a, a massive disruption in certain industries. The way I expect is that most of these third parties, uh, they just serve as execution bodies. You know, it's because we didn't have autonomous agents back you know, a few hundred years ago that we had to develop these services like banks, like brokers, that would take care of the middle layer for us. Now that we have blockchain, or now that we have automation in general, we can take things that humans used to do, and now we can make sure that those things are executed in a secure and um, unstoppable way. In the early days of the internet, it was supposed to be this decentralized, very democratic system. And it evolved into something completely different than that, where we have these monoliths like Facebook and Google and... At its core, it's just about decentralized decision making. That's all it is. Beginning. What's wrong with the with centralized? Well, I mean that, that's the that's the question, right? So there are certain cons associated with blockchain. These include um, certain technological cons and certain governance cons that you come in. And are those worth, in some cases, the decentralized um, the decentralized governance? Is, is it worth it? That's, that's and, it. So this is an open question. This is an open question, right? Um, it, it's um, I'm I'm really glad actually that you brought up that it's analogous to the um, the beginning of the internet because it really is. You have everybody trying to assume that hey, we're going to blockchain this, we're going to have blockchain that, similar to how everybody said everybody had a personal website and everybody had um, their own little company page. But is it actually useful in some cases? Maybe, maybe not. At its core, it's decentralized decision making, and that's what makes it so attractive to some people. Efficiency. It's going to. I mean, I wouldn't even say if it's efficient, right? In some in some cases, the, the the way you implement a blockchain is less efficient. I mean, it comes naturally, right? There are certain benefits of centralized decision making. Going back to Nadia's um, um, referee example, it's much more efficient for one single person to keep track of the score rather than having everybody keep track of the score, right? Both in terms of, like, memory and in terms of... Uh, energy. Energy, right? And that's, a, uh, that's another point we'll get to. But it's, it's, it's about, are the cons associated blockchain worth the uh, decentralized decision-making? Your organization, do you really honestly debate this? It's very easy to, to bow down and worship something and not question its implications. The thing is that blockchain, blockchain is unique. We recognize that it's unique, yeah. Blockchain is an interdisciplinary field. Uh, no other field mimics the way that blockchain works. You have to know from economics to computer science to cryptography in order to understand fully the implications of blockchain. But blockchain solves very specific problems in the world. Like There are aspects of blockchain that are more useful than other ones in certain situations. When you have a very specific problem, when you have this decentralized decision-making, this trust uh, issue between parties, that's when you want a blockchain. Because now you can have this immutable ledger that also comes to consensus in a way that doesn't rely on any single person. Instead, you trust this math in the protocol when you're making decisions, when you're operating within this system. Can you give me a couple of everyday examples that are going on right now that use the blockchain? Cryptocurrencies do come to mind. And define what that is. Right. A cryptocurrency is a currency that's built off of economics, computer science, and cryptography. Economics, in order to understand the behavior of every actor in this system. Computer science, in order to make sure that the information can be stored in an efficient manner. Because keep in mind, because this is a distributed ledger, it's going to cost a lot of memory in order to handle all of this information. We're storing hundreds of gigabytes all the way from 2009 on our computers in order to store the Bitcoin blockchain, for example. And cryptography in order to maintain security and privacy for the people involved. So when you submit a transaction 
to the Bitcoin network, you don't send it to a single person who takes care of it. Instead, you send it to this thousands of people who all can act on your behalf to verify your transaction. But there's a certain voting process, which is known as proof of work, that decides who gets to actually decide what transactions go into the next block of the blockchain. It's kind of a competition between data nodes, like who can do this better, and that's where all the energy use happens in the network, correct? Precisely. It's faster, not necessarily better. So, I mean, kind of looping back to your original question, and I would like to make one small addition. Um, Many people mistake that cryptocurrencies is like a financial network of some sort where you transact. But um, especially as we've seen, like, the industry mature at all, it's not at all. I mean, cryptocurrency, all cryptocurrencies, he mentioned it, that it's a system that uses economics, cryptography, and computer science to kind of, and a token, to kind of achieve some purpose. I think it's an important distinction because um, there are other, there are cryptocurrencies that have a token associated with them and have, like, an economic volume, but they achieve completely different purposes. There's a supply chain one, there's a property deed one. Um, there's one that tries to solve AI on a blockchain. So, I mean, there are all of these principles that's being developed, and um, it's not necessarily just meant for a financial network anymore, even though it is one of the most prominent examples because it's the one that we've started off with. It's the one that's been tested the most often. It's the one that has the most underlying principles associated with it. But kind of looping back, um, we have cryptocurrencies, which is a tokenized um, uh, network, and then we have supply chain is being tossed around a lot by um, these kind of big uh, companies that want to get into blockchain. And then we also have some kind of medical records are getting interesting. Um, medical records, there's some problems associated with that. Anywhere that you need, um, that you don't necessarily trust that the data either is going to be secure or that updates to the data aren't there. And once again, looping back to the general theme that you want decentralized control or decentralized decision making. In general, blockchain is being used to enforce accountability and uh, reliability, kind of like the fact that the data that you send is kind of uh, true and it's kind of secure. So, I mean, that's kind of where it's going. There are interesting applications being developed for the renewable energy credit market. And then also, in general, just overall accounting is being kind of revolutionized by blockchain. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Method to the Madness, a biweekly public affairs show on KALX Berkeley, celebrating Bay Area innovators. Today I'm speaking with Ashwini Panda and Nadir Ashtar, members of Blockchain at Berkeley. There's a kind of an irony with energy because it uses so much energy. And Let's talk about data mining. So the fascinating thing about Satoshi Nakamoto's innovation when it came to Bitcoin and the first blockchain was that he changed the way that a voting system works in a distributed network. So distributed systems are something we've known about for decades Research has been done for the last 30 years about how to make distributed systems secure and efficient, where a distributed system is merely a bunch of computers trying to achieve the same goal, as opposed to a single computer. The reason that this plays into Bitcoin is because every single person who's participating in this Bitcoin network is essentially their own computer, their own system, their own entity. And all of those people need to be able to coordinate with each other, despite not knowing who each other are, despite not knowing how much resources another entity has, despite not knowing how much influence another entity has. In Bitcoin, you solve what's known as the double spend attack. The problem that prevented online decentralized voting, like voting on transactions in Bitcoin, for example, was the Sybil attack, where someone can, at little cost, make another identity and use that extra identity in their own favor. 
So if I'm with 10 other people in this Bitcoin network and identities are easy and cheap to make, I can't trust that one of these people isn't actually just belonging to someone else, that all 10 of these people aren't just the same person, in which case my vote as a single entity is being overruled by another single entity. In a distributed system, all entities should have equal voting power. So Satoshi Nakamoto's innovation was to go from one identity, one vote, to a one CPU, one vote system. Meaning that instead of casting a vote because you have an identity associated with the network, you cast a vote by computing the answer to a puzzle. And this puzzle you can't solve by hand, you can't guess the answer to. It's like a brute force puzzle, like solving a password. You just try as many inputs as possible until you finally find the output. And that's where mining comes in. Because you've restricted the voting process to machines, a person can't duplicate those the way that they can duplicate their online accounts or their online identities. And that is what prevents a person from voting more than they are allowed to, because you tether their identity to the resources instead of to their online entity. So all these machines are grinding out this competition, and that's the mining? Precisely. Okay, and that uses a lot of energy, obviously. Mm-hmm. I would like to point out that there are alternatives. I mean, the the cryptocurrency and the blockchain space in general has known that this is a problem. We've known it for a while, especially with the widespread adoption we're seeing now. We see it as a very big problem. And um, it's become and gotten to the point where it's no longer decentralized, right? And one of, like, the very big points in voting uh, – in the voting – like, when we just dis- – decide on what voting algorithm to use is how centralized is it? Because in this case, it's gone to the point that you can, you can only mine by having specialized hardware. Um, they're called ASICs, uh, application-specific integrated circuits. And if you don't have one of those, you're not going to be able to mine successfully. You won't beat out anybody else. So what's happened just to the nature of like an evolving marketplace is that all the smaller players have been pushed out. And now what we have is we have these giant farms sitting in China mm-hmm. and India. So um, China, India, Iceland's a very good one because they use their temperature to keep the electricity costs low. So we have that, and it's not really centralized anymore. So there are alternatives being developed that do consume less electricity or consume no electricity at all. Um, the most popular one would be proof of stake, uh, where um, you basically say that you have to um, you have to hold in reserve some of the coins that you associate to vote. So instead of like one CPU, one vote, it's one coin, one vote. And if you act badly or you lie about it, then we uh, slash your vote. We take away the coins that you've put down. Okay. So I mean, there are all alternatives being developed, and it's a big it's like a big thing that we notice. I'm just saying that, um, especially in a lot of industrial applications. They're not using proof-of-work. Proof-of-work is considered by a lot of people to be kind of like an antiquated system. It was good back when it started off, but because the industry... It used too much energy. It used too much energy. I mean, what was the last estimate? It used more energy than Iceland or something like that? <laughs> yeah, it was, it was, it's been insane about how much energy it is. It kind of ties into the greater problem or a greater trend in the blockchain industry is that we are becoming more and more concerned about our impact on the world. You see it with a lot of people who want to be ethical, a lot of knowledgeable people. Uh, we ourselves kind of do that on our part by trying to propagate like the correct knowledge and how to do things. Who else is looking at this from all sides? So blockchain in Berkeley is unique, and that's one of the only neutral arbitrators of information being an academic organization run by students and not by companies. There are other organizations like the MIT Bitcoin Club, UPenn's Blockchain Club, that are also doing this. To my knowledge, they're not as prominent in the general blockchain space. Let's talk about the, uh, some other cryptocurrencies like Ethereum. Ethereum is unique in the fact that it has decentralized applications. They're called dApps. Basically, Bitcoin does have that, but it's to a much limited degree. It's a very, very limited degree. It's like almost you can only concern financial transactions. It's like applications sitting above the 
blockchain. Yeah. In Bitcoin, the only thing you can append are financial transactions. You can only say that I'm moving money from this to this. However, in Ethereum, it's built in such a way that you can append much more than that. And then you can append full-on application changes, right? Sorry if I get a little bit technical, but uh, the state changes are recorded, right? I mean, that's saying that there's one state right now, and then let's change it up, and then that state. And then you can do applications. There's a Minecraft application that was built on Ethereum. Minecraft's a game. It's completely run on Ethereum. It's, it's, uh, it's a really quite interesting. But going back to other cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin has an anonymity problem that's been widespread without. Rather than being truly anonymous, it's tied to a mask instead. Um, that's the best way I can say it. That it's like everybody's wearing a mask. Everybody still knows that there's a specific person associated with the mask. They just don't know who's behind the mask. And that's kind of like the definition of pseudo-anonymous. Um, but there are other applications, Monero, Zcash, that try to make things truly anonymous. So you can't trace any type of transaction amount or in, in between the participants except for the participants. And then there are other things. There are all these new altcoins coming out that try to solve other problems. For a long time, there has been a problem with AI and blockchain because there's like the two sort of like big buzzwords going on. So everybody's like, let's do AI on blockchain. There are a lot of cryptocurrencies that try to solve AI on blockchain. What would that mean to use AI on the blockchain? AI and blockchain serve two different purposes. The issue is whether or not using one can facilitate the accomplishments of the other. Right, so AI is in data analysis and processing, and blockchain is in data storage and agreement. So let's say that, let's say it's uh, 2200, and I want to make a supreme overlord that is an AI, like something that <laughs> is making decisions for all humans. But I don't want to put this decision-making power in the hands of any single computer. So I create an AI that lives on top of a blockchain. So on one hand, you have what looks like just a single entity that's running this AI, but in actuality, it's a blockchain network. And every update to this blockchain network is an update to either the AI's model, so to say, its decision-making strategies, or an update to the actual decisions, the computation that the AI has done. Could it keep the AI ethical? Well, that's all in the hands of the people who run the endpoints who control the blockchain nodes. A lot of people say that like blockchain will like eliminate the um, the middle layer or increase trust or like um, make sure that we all can live in harmony. But uh, and the reality it's it's just as susceptible to corruption or anything like that as other people. I thought it has never up to today it has not been corrupted. It's never been corrupted in that the math and protocol behind blockchain is secure. The difference is that if you don't trust the endpoints when you're dealing with things like supply chain, then in that sense you can corrupt the blockchain. A blockchain doesn't facilitate the transfer of information from the real world to the virtual world. It doesn't stand like behind some person who's inputting data into a computer, but what it does is ensure that it's much easier in this virtual landscape to keep information accurate and uncorrupted once it's been inserted into the blockchain. And I think it's important to realize that it's 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 not really developed yet. Um, we had the Ethereum hack, the DAO hack of 2016, right? Or 2016, mm-hmm. that resulted in over, um, s- I forgot the exact amount, a certain amount in loss. We had the Japanese exchange that was hacked a week ago. It really comes down to the fact that blockchain allows for a secure or efficient way to distribute and decide about information, but whether that information is correct or not, or whether you can control the voters, that's completely up to kind of whoever's in the system. It's unique in the fact that the, the, the voters don't have to trust each other, but they, there's also problems associated with the network as a whole. Right now, you know, if you're on Facebook or Amazon or Google, my life's history, if I use those monoliths, 
They have it. They use it. They make money on it. Will blockchain enable people to uh, monetize their private data, get paid for our personal data via blockchain? Is that a possibility? So there's a lot of research going into this. It's tricky to say for the reason that I haven't seen anyone yet successfully do it, or if they've done it, it's too early to tell whether it'll be successful. Traditionally, Facebook stores your password, stores your email address, stores all that information. With blockchain, you're responsible for holding onto that information yourself. It takes the burden off of a central organization and puts it on the user. The issue is that if the user isn't securing their own information correctly, it's just as vulnerable, if not worse. Right? We sort of enter a social contract when we go with these big companies because they handle a lot of stuff in exchange for a lot of free stuff. So I would get value for my data, but I would also have to really manage it and make sure no one steals it. And how many people know how to do that? The right. regular layperson. I mean, it comes a problem when you see people like if you ever if you ever browse like certain support forms, they'll say, "I lost my pass or a private key." In this case, how do I get my money back? Or one thing is that um, we've seen a due to like the adoption of Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies, we've seen a big jump in hackers, and uh, there are certain security protocols. And then somebody posts that, "Hey, I got hacked." And at that point, there's nobody to blame but – I mean, not I wouldn't say nobody to blame but yourself. Nobody can help you. There's no um, – there's research being done in about account recovery and so forth. But um, at, at this point, like I said, there's no organization that's going to hold your hand and say, it's okay. Let me refund you. Well, is this where a regulatory body comes in or some sort of a governmental controls? That's the very funny thing about blockchain when you say we want to put regulations on this deregulated network. Right? There's always this conflict between – putting the trust on the endpoints, the users, letting them make their own decisions freely, or having some centralized or central-ish entity that makes decisions on behalf of all of the users. There was this one project, it was an ICO, or initial coin offering, known as Tezos. And what Tezos wanted to do was put governance on the blockchain. When Bitcoin and Ethereum undergo changes, it's an informal process, sort of like an ad hoc group of people who know what's going on, who say, yes, I think we should do this. Yes, I think we should increase the block size, for example, to allow for more transactions per second. Yes, I think we should change the way that we read information in a block or whatever it may be. Typically, we say we go onto some forum online, make a post about what we want to change, and everyone says, all right, I'm going to update my software at this point. What Tezos wanted to do was make rules about the rules. In other words, you vote within the blockchain about what the rules are governing that voting process and the blockchain, instead of having to do it outside of the scope of the technology itself. How did that work out? It's funny. Tezos was, has actually been sued twice. In summary, Tezos was not actually producing what they said they would be producing. They said, here's our plans for the future, here's our expectations, here's how much funding we need, and people paid them because it did sound like a good project. There's a lot of problems that can be solved with the solutions that Tezos was proposing. The issue is that once the developers have millions of dollars in their hand, they don't really want to work. So going back to Tezos, right, it still so, it still doesn't solve like the issue we're talking about. It's a big problem we see in like ICOs because there's whales coming in with massive amount of money and then they'll manipulate the market. Nobody's going to control them. Nobody can control them because it's a decentralized network. And then um, and even in Tezos, even if you have to do Tezos, you have to get the entire community or like a majority of the community to agree that this person's bad. And then they can always subvert the system by creating another identity. Just because of the nature of blockchain, it's very, very hard to introduce any kind of regular oversight. The only way that governments have successfully been able to do it 
is that these endpoints that we keep talking about, like um, where you get into the space, where you buy a coin or so forth, those can be regulated. Um, the most prominent ones of the view is, you know, Coinbase is where you buy it. The Coinbase has succeeded to federal oversight on multiple times, and they have, like, started to give it over records and so forth. It goes back to the fact that, like, blockchain itself isn't inherently, like, suspect-free or anything. All it does is that it makes sure that the system itself is, uh, I guess the best word would be, like, error-free. And then however the users act, that's up to the users. So it sounds like there's a lot of challenges, but do you think in the long run blockchain is going to be a standard? And if so, how many years are we talking about? I don't want to replace every single database with a blockchain for the reason that I wouldn't replace every single mode of transportation with an airplane. Airplanes are very good at doing some things like transporting passengers quickly, and boats are very good at transporting large amounts of cargo. Each one serves its own purpose. Similarly, blockchains, they serve their own specific purpose, just as centralized databases do, just as a uh, distributed but fault-free or non-public systems do as well. I think blockchains could be a standard when it comes to eliminating third parties. I do believe that. The only reason that we haven't done it yet is because we just didn't have the capability to remove the human execution error that we have dealt with for the past few thousand years as a species. Once we have enough research done to where we can make secure regulatory bodies through a blockchain, I do think that they will be the standard for that middle layer of trust that we have put in these third parties. You'll never actually know that a blockchain exists behind your application, and you never should. Blockchain, for better or for worse, is very much a back-end technology for those familiar with computer science terms. It's, it's a way to make a database more resistant and more um, secure. But you'll never know it. So, I mean, will blockchain become a standard? No, not necessarily. Um, one concern that I personally have is that I have yet to see a good use case other than a financial network, one that's fully developed out or so so forth, and then governments will never want their money to be on a blockchain. Bitcoin, for better or for worse, is a financial network that does really well. Um, Ethereum is a distributed computer, but there are certain problems with Ethereum that have yet to be addressed. People are jumping on the hype and saying, blockchain will rule the world. No, it won't. It really won't. A blockchain, at best, will improve the efficiency and security of several already existing applications. And that'll be a go. But once again, blockchain is not meant for like the end user to directly interact. They'll interact with an application, and then the database the application is associated with will be a blockchain. All you hear about Bitcoin is one of two things. Hey, it's super volatile. I made 10x money. Or that you heard that, hey, somebody got hacked. So, I mean, there's been a very big negative stigma, and that's been a limiting factor for company adoption. And also, people are doing it. Chase has been in the market. Um, JP Morgan has been in the blockchain one for almost two years now. They've developed their own private blockchain. Um, IBM, do these blockchains communicate with each other? They can, can they? There's two separate ways you can do it. You can either do it with a main chain and associated side chains, or you can have completely separate chains that interact with each other. IBM sponsors a research group slash set of projects called Hyperledger, and the meant to interact with each other. So interesting capabilities there. Companies are slowly adopting it. Currently, there's like a bad stigma associated with it. A lot of lack of talent is another big thing. That oh, company, interesting. Yeah, companies are like hiring up. If you if you want to get money real quick, if you want to get a good like six-figure salary, become a blockchain dev. Um, there are tons of resources available, including our own um, dev courses that we kind of provide. Tell me what your organization offers the community both on the campus and, and outside of, of Berkeley. We have three main departments, each of which has their own vision and mission. Uh, we have education, which, as the name implies, is focused on teaching people, but not just students, entire communities, companies, anyone who is 
dealing with blockchain, we want to educate. We have two courses that we teach on the UC Berkeley campus. So you actually can take the course online this coming May when it's going to be released on edX. It'll be the first blockchain crypto course fully on edX. We actually are developing certifications for different parts of the blockchain space. We have certificates for blockchain fundamentals, for blockchain developers, for blockchain consultants or researchers, and these certificates are tests of knowledge similar to the SAT. It's a standardized test that says whether or not you have the aptitude to understand some aspect of blockchain. The certificate I mentioned related with edX is a certificate of completion saying that, yes, you have actually gone through this online course as opposed to just going through a bunch of YouTube videos and now claiming to be an expert. We have the consulting branch, which does work with companies and trains internal members, devs, and consultants. The consulting branch has worked with Airbus, Qualcomm, BMW, and going to be working with more this coming semester to build real projects that are used by these companies. Uh, we've also worked a lot on internal projects. This one pharmaceutical problem, uh, supply chain, the U.S. passed a bill saying that by 2022-23, all pharmaceuticals the entire supply chain needs to be recorded and tracked in an immutable, auditable way. Right, so naturally, blockchain lends itself easily to that, which is another project we worked on internally. And the third department is research, uh, research and development, R&D. These work on solving several fundamental questions and issues that are still prevalent in the research space. We are currently partnering with both the Kyber Network, um, which, is a, which is a distributed exchange, and also that we're working with Ethereum Foundation to start working on some of the scalability issues. We, we try to be an all-in-one company, and we try to do everything at once. And um, so we provide education to members, both to the public in general and to companies as well. Um, we kind of develop software and develop products, and then we also do research. We do have events for all levels, of, all ranges of knowledge, from beginner all the way to end. And then if you do want to, like, jump into the deep end, it's not hard. We do have our previous courses available on uh, in archive, so you can just go and look through those. You can actually audit our courses here at Berkeley for free. Conveniently, for those who have work, there's the Blockchain Fundamentals course on Saturdays 2 to 4 p.m. that I and others are teaching from Blockchain at Berkeley. We have the Blockchain for Developers course as well. If you're interested in those events that education hosts, just go to blockchain.berkeley.edu and check out the education tab. And you can find out about all the stuff you just talked about. Mm-hmm. Thank you for coming in. A pleasure. You've been listening to Method to the Madness, a bi-weekly public affairs show on KALX Berkeley celebrating Bay Area innovators. You can find all of our podcasts on iTunes University. We'll see you in two weeks.